Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone from Brighton, he's our guest, actor and writer, Rufus Jones. You walk into the room with your pencil in your hand. You see somebody naked and you say, Who is that man? You try so hard, but you don't understand just what will you say when you get home. Because something is happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Oh, that was scary. (laughs) (laughs) Scary song, Kerry. (laughs) That was weird. That was a bit like a Roald Dahl sort of monologue or something. Anyway, why did you you choose that, Ruth? Well, look, the trite answer is that um, I'm in the song. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Jones always cut me to the quick whenever I heard it. And uh, weirdly, I I arrived at it um, from the song, Mr. Jones, by the Counting Crows, who were, uh, you know, they did one great early album in the 90s, August and everything after. And they did a song called called Mr. Jones, which kind of flip reverses back onto Ballad of a Thin Man and takes Mr. Jones's uh, position, basically sympathizes with him in ways that Bob probably isn't. and they mentioned Dylan at the end. And so, you know, I, I did that, that, that probably kind of uh, long, long walk trail of kind of reversing my steps back to the Dylan original. I remember when that album came out and I heard uh, Counting Crows sing, I Want to Be Bob Dylan. That's it. In 93 or 94, that was possibly the most unfashionable thing anybody could say in a song. <laughs> and I was so happy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And I, I went back to the original. I was probably about, I don't know, 18 or something. And the scorn of the song really cut me to the quick. And I, I it stayed with me sort of ever since. And I, I realized that what it was probably calling to me was the fact that I've always found Dylan a kind of intimidating presence in my life. He's a presence I've chosen because I love his music and I love him and so much of what he stands for artistically. But at the same time, he scares the hell out of me. And every time I listen to him, especially a song I've not listened to before, I always feel like Mr. Jones walking into that room <laughs> and everyone in the room staring at me and saying, do you get it? Do you get it? Yeah. And, and it's taken me, it's taken me some time to kind of, kind of be at ease around, around Bob, you know, I'm not yeah. even being that dramatic. I, I even coming onto a podcast like this, uh, which should be joyous and fun. And, you know, I, you kind of think, oh, God, right, i got to say the right thing. It almost feels like kind of, and that's nothing to do with you guys, it's to do with the kind of shadow that Bob casts, that he makes you kind of question yourself, or makes me question myself, kind of in in ways that no other artist does. And, and uh, it, it's funny because I was age 14, 15. I was into Simon and Garfunkel. I was even into Tom Waits. Both my parents had them on vinyl. Um, and so we listened to them a lot. And yet Dylan was a tape that my mum had. And I always found it in her room. And I always thought it was significant. She had Blonde on Blonde, basically, mm-hmm. uh, which was a real personal album to her. And I always thought it was significant that she didn't have Bob on vinyl. She had it on tape, which suggested a private listen. You know, it was like <laughs> a, it was a listen that my dad wasn't necessarily involved with because they weren't together then. <laughs> and and I think I always I always took that with me that there was something there was a, a private relationship with Bob, and I remember I remember giving Blonde on Blonde a go, and uh, and hitting um, 
just like a woman. And, and that, that absolutely threw me for a loop. Uh, and you, you were 14, did you yeah, say? Yeah, I was 14, 15. And I think, I think that the, the, the problem I have, I had with Bob and sort of continued to was that because he can't, he doesn't come out of a pop tradition, particularly, um, he's not singing songs to make friends, basically. <laughs> and, and I think, I think when I look at people I did like around then, the Beatles or Simon and Garfunkel in terms of my kind of retro tastes, uh, they were kind of welcoming you in. Whereas Bob, and they, they were also singing about things that age 14, 15, maybe you'd had some experience of. With Simon and Garfunkel, it was, uh, you know, kind of existential angst. Um, with Tom Waits, it was, well, you know, I'd had a couple of pints of beer say, around then. Sure. So, you know, I could kind of relate to his drunken kind of uh, 3 a.m. songs. But with Bob, I didn't know at that age what he was talking about because I hadn't experienced so much of what he was singing of. And it took me a while to catch up. But the moment I started living life, like basically university, the door flew open, you know. But even songs that begin, they're selling postcards of the hanging. Yeah. Is you know, is something that you, I mean, I only found out that literally there there had been a hanging in Duluth. That's right. Uh, you know, when his father uh, was was a boy. But I didn't know that. So just they're selling postcards of the hanging. As, a, as an opening line to a song, that's not Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. And I loved Simon and Garfunkel. But, and and uh, funnily enough, De- Desolation Row kind of hit me at a time at university. So, so, so my kind of, my experience with Bob was kind of two-step in the sense that he baffled me sort of, you know, kind of on tape age 14, but then age 19, I had a good friend at university called Sam, who was a huge Bob head. And we did the time-honored thing of, you know, smoking a joint and getting loaded and then turning the lights out and and listening, uh, listening to the bootlegs, basically. Mm. And and that was a huge, that was the proper kind of second wind of Bob for me. Um, and Desolation Row was a, I, th- I think the original Desolation Row and then Blind Willie McTell off, off the bootlegs and uh, Every Grain of Sand, funnily enough, as well, mm. were the three which really... Uh, booted the door down for me for Bob and um, Desolation Row. Yeah, particularly kind of particularly stays with me. Yeah, the fact that um, the fact that that first line feels like it's just part of a a kind of Hieronymus Bosch kind of hellscape, you know. Mm. But it but it it bloody happened. And actually, it's the one line uh, of virtually the whole song which is based in historical truth, and yet it seems like the most surreally horrific one. Feels like Dylan's kind of uh, making that point. <laughs> the mm. stuff you think is the worst in this song, you're actually living with, you know, or is in is mm. in your near history, in the country's near history. That was certainly something that kind of critics like Christopher Ricks have pointed out that there's actually more to cling on to in terms of history in that song than it first suggests, you know. Yeah, I mean, who knew? I certainly didn't. Right. So Christopher Ricks now, he was uh, he was at Cambridge at the same time. He wasn't. He was, um, I think he was an Oxford professor. I mean, this all sounds so dry, but uh, he was an Oxford <laughs> professor who then uh, ended up at Columbia University. And he, he was a, a very venerated poetry professor, but he was also a massive Dylan fan. And he made a trip to Cambridge just one night. And okay. for some reason, I just, you know, I ended up in this room listening to him and everyone, everyone was drinking red wine. And, and Ricks, as a, as a venerated kind of, yeah, poetry professor, he's basically a Dylan fan, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So when you hear him talk, and it's worth, it's worth checking him out on YouTube, 
he talks like a fanboy, basically. And all he talks about is, listen, you really got to see him live and all the sort of platitudes that we'll all talk about. <laughs> and so that's a really important thing. I think he doesn't come from it from a, a dry position of critical analysis. You know, he, he comes from the position of kind of your podcast, you know, just to learn more. And he, he talked brilliantly, yeah, about Desolation Row and, and what particularly in that song and generally what, what Dylan owes T.S. Eliot. And T.S. Eliot was someone I was studying at the time. So suddenly it felt like Dylan was being not just allowed, but kind of ushered into my, my, my curriculum, you know? Mm. Um, and that was unique. I mean, I, I can't really recall too many other uh, singers who you, could, who, who you could name drop in a kind of Cambridge American Studies class and no one would bat an eyelid. And so it was it immediately was kind of interesting that you could talk about virtually any any set text or through shot through the prism of of a Dylan song, mm. and um and that would be totally accepted and and that that baffled me and and totally delighted me and uh, and it it provided a kind of way of me of looking at my studies at Cambridge in a whole new light. The best thing I think about the writing of Christopher Ricks is that it kind of enables you to listen to the music afresh. And, and it's not as dry as, as it seems to be. When you read it, it seems, you know, some of it seems a bit sued corner. But actually then your mind gets going and you start reappraising the music so that you kind of are playing it in your head as you're reading. And then when you do play it again, you're informed by that writing. And that's got to be the best kind of critical writing, in my view. That's it. That, that's exactly it. He's basically, he's constantly saying to you, listen to it again, listen to it again. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's, it's poetry is an oral tradition, you know, and, and, and that's still not a terribly recognized thing. I don't think sort of particularly in academic studies, yeah. uh, but Rick's is always about going back to the music and sort of just, you know, clasping you by the shoulder and saying, isn't he great? You know, and, um, and it makes it kind of a lot more democratic than, than than criticism often is for instance he had a, a huge just recently i was reading a an article he'd written about uh, just like a woman and he made this very simple point that hadn't occurred to me since i first listened to it when i was 14 15 but he said you know it's a problematic song and uh for years people have struggled to know quite what to do with it mm. uh in terms of kind of you know the role of the woman in it but he he says just that first line of uh, nobody feels any pain i think he described it as saying um that is basically the self-possessed woe is me boy <laughs> basically <laughs> saying um nobody feels any pain apart from this guy mm. <laughs> and that's exactly it and actually it's a guy who's not really admitting his heartbreak uh, and is really just this savant who's had his heart broken and will just lash out by making platitudes about what women are. Uh, he, he basically framed it like that. And I kind of thought, yeah, actually, that's, that's exactly what it sounds like. And it's, it's almost, it's also very true to what heartbreak can feel like when you're, you know, however old he was when he, when he recorded it, like 26 or something. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by that evening that you uh, that you spent with Christopher Ricks. Just to go back to that, yeah. I mean, I'm like, how long was it? And were people asking him a lot of questions, or, or were they being very uh, respectful? Uh, no, or did no, it, it was really it was really back and forth. He was really cool. Uh, it was all about, particularly about Elliot and Dylan. And he, from what I remember, he was focusing on smoke. <laughs> it was smoke in Dylan. The role of smoke in Dylan. Oh. And the role of smoke in Elliot, particularly blue smoke. And he. That, there was some line where Dylan talks about blue smoke and I can't remember where that is, 
but he found a source for it in in some of T.S. Eliot's writing and then teased it all up into this terrific sort of comparison of Eliot's proof rock and wasteland against uh, against kind of Dylan's kind of visions, you know, and and talking about uh, how much kind of Dylan took from Eliot, probably, you know, a lot more than he'd first admit. I, I don't know if you guys heard recently Dylan doing the first verse of the, the Wasteland. Have you heard that? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, it's yeah, from yeah. one of his um, radio shows. It was on his radio show, and it's really mm. interesting because he does. You know, I, I know we're probably allowed one bad Dylan impression every episode, but uh, absolutely, <laughs> please Go let ahead. it be to fall on my sword. But he does this <laughs> this thing when he reads it, which is such a poet reading poetry. Where you yeah. know, sometimes the po- poets when they read poetry, they they really um, emphasize the line breaks, and it can mm, some- yeah. sound very sort of stilted. Uh, and he does this thing where he says, April is the cruelest month, breeding, lilacs out of the dead land, mixing, memory and desire, stirring. And he does, he hits these yeah. participles, which would suddenly make it feel alive again, which is great. But it, it, it's also him kind of going, I get this and I get the poetry and I get the line endings and I want you to get them too. And, and yet he punctures himself his own pomposity, doesn't he? When he, he stumbles over a word and he says, I hope I said that right, and laughs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is so endearing, you know. Yeah. I love the way he just treats everybody the same. Yeah. T.S. Eliot and uh, we got somebody on the line, you know, it's Joe Bloggs from nowhere. And then the next time it's Tom Waits and they're all the same. Yeah. All the same. Yeah. No, that's it. And, and, and particularly Desolation Row kind of, um, I understand that he doesn't actually sing the... Elliot Pound verse of Desolation Row all that much anymore. Um, there was, a, or at least there was a long period where he didn't. Oh yeah, uh, I don't know. Kerry and I saw him together a few years ago, and I've said this on the podcast before, and he repeated a verse of Desolation Row. Um, But I don't remember him missing one out. But but, what's your point? Uh, Are you saying that you think maybe he's not behind that verse anymore? I think maybe maybe he suddenly thought it felt like he was kind of wearing his education a little too heavily in that that verse. It kind of, um, it's such a, it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful thing. But uh, I think... (laughs) I, Rick's put it really well in an essay where he said the least interesting thing about that song is that he actually name checks T.S. Eliot. It, actually, you see sort of T.S. Eliot and the wasteland, particularly all over Desolation Row. And I mm. wonder if Bob maybe had the same idea if he did leave it out that he kind of thought, well, look, the whole thing is so is so clearly the wasteland in its kind of <laughs> ethic and in its visions that I don't need to give you the author's name in there. You know what I mean? But I mean, it does seem the same. It's one of my favorite verses. You no, know. I know. Great verse. It's still on the website. And I, I mentioned this only because yesterday I happened to be looking through some of the lyrics on the website and I wanted to quote something from, from Blind Willie McTell, which hit me. And that verse has been removed. And oh, it struck me that somebody is is messing with, with things behind the scenes. So, But that Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot verse is still on his website. Oh, well, that's but in, in Blind Willie McTell, you don't get the verse, see them big plantations burning, hear the cracking of the whips, smell oh. that sweet magnolia blooming, and see the ghost of slavery ships. That's gone. Well, that's, that's weird. That, that'd be really disappointing if it was sort of excised for, I don't know, kind of contemporary reasons. I, I cannot imagine, you know, Bob Dylan approving of anything, yeah. any excision like that. Uh, I mean, you know, for instance, in uh, Murder, Most Foul, you know, it, it's full of the most shocking imagery, not racist imagery, but, you know, heads exploding and yeah. mm-hmm. Lamb to the Slaughter. And I mean, I, f- I find that song actually uh, quite sickening. Uh, in, in its in its imagery, and it's it takes yeah. a lot to 
to sicken you, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the whole section in there, and it takes a while to get to, but, you know, they mutilated his body and they took out his brain. Yeah, Bob's obviously been been looking at the kind of post-mortem stuff, you know, online. And, well, exactly. Uh, Actually, I didn't realize that I, I did a lot of research on that song to try yeah. to make sense of it. And I hadn't realized that they, A, had mutilated his body, that in order to... The whole song is a, is a giant conspiracy theory yeah. uh, recap, really, isn't it? At least, well, there's much more there, but the, partially it is. Yeah. And uh, that they'd actually, uh, now, I don't know if this is if this is a conspiracy theory, but uh, apparently that his body was mutilated in, in order to make it look like the bullets came from different angles. I, th- I think it is a conspiracy theory. And it's, 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 a fascina- it's a fascinating thing about the song, which I love, by the way. I just think it's, listen to that thing just back to back for about two days. But um, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's really initially you kind of go through you you, you jump through the hoops that jo, that Bob is kind of making you jump through and you think oh it's it's a, it's a, a counter to American Pie no hang on it's uh, it's something much more in the hurricane mold you know and and you realize that it's not really a protest song he's going back to the scene of a crime which feels like you know the Reuben Carter song but um, mm. the fact is we all know that scene of the crime more than any single scene of the crime ever and, and we've seen the Oliver Stone film. And weirdly, Mm. the only people protesting about the JFK assassination is the alt-right. You know, it's kind of much more the province of tin hat conspiracists and stuff. Mm. And you feel like sort of Dylan is going down that road a little bit. And then the song kind of pulls out because it just sort of thinks, well, hang on, Uh, what am I doing here? What am I saying? And it sort of, it leaves the kind of scene of the crime because we all have our opinions and we all know how that song goes. And it becomes much more a, a, a meditation of, of an America lost, you know, what, what he talks about, about the soul's not where it's supposed to be after the last 50 years we've been searching for that, which, um, mm. you know, is this, uh, the sing, uh, for me, that's the single best couplet in the whole thing. It's just, that re- it reminded me weirdly of the, the Mrs. Robinson line of where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio, a nation turns its love <laughs> eyes to you, you oh, know, yeah. just uh, a country that's that's been crying out for 50 years for, for, for guidance and and we sure don't have it now you know um, there's a couple of things about murder most foul which which occurred to me within the last week and just to place this in some kind of context we're recording this um just before the release of rough and rowdy ways which is why we've only heard 30 percent of the album but he spoke in that new york times interview about a lot of this music being written in a trance state yeah. and, and that seems very appropriate to me when we're discussing Murder Most Foul, but also just in terms of that Elliot thing, it seems to me there is a bit of a line to be drawn between The Wasteland, Desolation Row, and Murder Most Foul. Would you, would you think oh, yeah, so? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I remember I, I, I kind of really got into my Elliot at university and I, I, I still read him. And uh, what's really interesting, what one of the many things about him is when he was a kid, he was very religious and remained very religious, I think, sort of through his yeah. whole life because he, he was brought up in St. Louis. He's American, T.S. Eliot. Yeah. And he used to try and have visions. He used to have kind of uh, religious visions. And he would uh, he would like uh, do auto-starvation so he'd like not eat for four days so that he could see things and try and write them down. And I think <laughs> I think Bob probably used other substances for that. But um, yeah, when you read back to Proof Rock or The Wasteland, Bob is very happy for for, you know, characters from uh, Greek mythology to rub shoulders with, you know, contemporary American people. And and, and, and for anyone who's read Eliot, that is completely familiar because that's that's kind of what modernism invented, you know, to some extent. Mm. And, and uh, also, I guess, the, the Lincoln thing for the Wasteland and the Kennedy thing for Murder Most Foul, it's yeah. almost too neat to avoid, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. 
And, uh, and, and I also just love how the thing goes from, you know, 63 in a, a political crime scene. And then basically by the end becomes almost like an incantation. It, it becomes like sort of <laughs> Bob's arm, you know, of play, play Glenn, Glenn Fry, play Don Henley, play yeah. 360 other people who were basically on, on Bob's internal jukebox. It kind of yeah. feels like. So it's a bit like, doesn't the wasteland end? And I don't know it very well, but doesn't it end shanty, shanty, yeah, shanty? Exactly. So it is. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it becomes, and, and I think, I think, uh, I contain multitudes and, Monomos Fal, which which share similar music, actually. I think it's it's kind of pretty much the same kind of baseline. They both kind of share that kind of uh, yeah that 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 kind of incantation, and the particularly the the, the final endless list in Murdermost Fal, which I just love. It, it does feel like his internal jukebox, and he's not getting in the way of any of those choices. Hmm. So, so whether it's Chet Baker or the Eagles. He's going to admit to you all the stuff that, you know, he finds himself humming at 11 at night after his fourth glass of red wine. And I think there, I think there's, there's a great sort of democracy in all those choices and, and it's high art and it's low art and in some choices, mm. no art at all. Uh, and it's terrific. It's, it's a really demystifying period, I think, for Dylan. He's letting you in a bit more than he ever did. Yeah, there's also, I think, another way of, of looking at that incantation bit of Murder Most Foul, and that is, and someone pointed this out on, online, I forget who, but it does make perfect sense that when that bit starts, it seems to have entered a different sort of arena of the song, but then it comes back towards the end to Don't Worry, Mr. President, Help's on the Way, Your Brothers Are Coming, There'll yeah. Be Hell to Pay. Brothers, what brothers? What's what's this about <laughs> hell? And you start, and someone suggested that actually this incantation period are the ramblings of JFK on his deathbed as he's waiting mm for the ambulance and in that moment he can see all of american culture forward and backward and i think that's wow. an idea that works really really well oh that's beautiful well, there's, there's yeah because so it, it has to be it has to be more than i'm gonna list a load of you know terrific musicians who represent mm. america's loss of innocence and uh, whatever because you know we know those songs but um that's a, that's a great idea because he, he, I really, he's actually talking about at one stage just before that about yeah. the, his head kind of falling into her lap, isn't he? And so to the he, left. Yeah. yeah, to the left. Yeah, they, 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 I think it was leaning to the left right. uh, because his politics had been leaning to the left at oh, that wow. point. At least that's, uh, a, 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 you know, one of the, my, my theory that I came up with yesterday in the garden, it's completely nutty. But it shows you when you when you listen to the song enough times. Yeah. Uh, this is completely out of my own stupid head, um, and I've also been rewatching The Sopranos recently. Right, and in The Sopranos, the number three is is. Chris goes to hell at three o'clock when he's shot. He talks to the devil. And there's lots of, the number three is, is prevalent in The Sopranos. A lot of people say that the mob uh, were responsible for killing Kennedy because he double-crossed them because, you know, his, his father was mobbed up and they handed him the election because he won Chicago. Anyway, I've noticed the prevalence of, of just three. This sounds like a complete conspiracy theory, <laughs> Dylan, in that case thing. But honestly, three runs all the way through that song. There's these three word song titles, Stella by Starlight, All That Jazz, Scratch My Back, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Memphis in June, Marching Through Georgia, Murder Most Foul, uh, and variations in the actual lyrics where he says, play number nine, play number six, 36 hours past Judgment Day, the Zapruder film, seen it 33 times, and also Kennedy's head explodes at frame 313 on the Zapruder film. Whoa. Killed him on the altar with the rising sun, three words, which uh, was, uh, of course, an allusion to, not of course, possibly an allusion to New Orleans, which is where Lee Harvey Oswald grew up. Anyway, 
That was what I did yesterday. I went insane. <laughs> you got to email this to David. I can immediately carry. Well, that's pretty good, and it ties up with um, Pamela Thirshwell, who who said recently the first verse of Murder Most Foul is not promising. Think the Kennedy assassination as a Sopranos episode written by Christopher Moltisanti, which that's brilliant. Which is a really unfair thing to quote because the rest of her article is is wonderful, but and that's a very sort of damning few first few lines. But God, it made me laugh. But she but does. When I, but, but when she you does hear the, point. the opening of it, you do think. Twas a yeah. dark day in Dallas. Oh. No, that, that mock heroic Dylan, I can do without. <laughs> but he must be taking the piss yes. or something. What is he doing? I still don't understand. I think there's team. a sense of, um, there's something slightly Americana about that. And it's slightly kind of songs from the Wild West, which incorporate that kind of mock Victorian kind of phrasing. And he's he's not averse to a little bit of uh, of the mock heroic Bob. But it's very, it's very thankful when he sort of, or at least I'm very thankful when he sort of drops it after, after about kind of the first, the first verse, and and, mm. and we get into something uh, a little more interesting. But you know, I I read someone recently on Twitter saying, look, to be honest, the first verse sounds like kind of William McGonagall. You know, it almost feels like <laughs> yes. intentionally bad poetry. <laughs> Yeah, especially in oh. couplet form, and you think, man, you're not doing yourself any favors here. And no, a riding by, by high, parents, good day to die. You know, yeah. yeah. And and you're waiting for the song to kind of you know to take a turn, and and it does, thank God. But yeah, yeah. it's a slow start. <laughs> yeah, but I keep oh, I always wonder with Dylan, what was he up to? Because it had to be particularly this. This is so specifically bad. You know what was he? What was he up to? Because he, he's you know he's capable of yeah of anything. Yeah, and so he decided to do that. Yeah. I know, uh, I know, and I, it just feels, it just feels like a soft start, and he's just, and and I don't know, he's just fainting to the left, and, uh, and mm. before he kind of hits you with the stuff. But I mean, what, what, what one other bit I I found really uh, disorientating when I heard it was his um, his Nightmare on Elm Street reference, mm. and you just yeah. think, what what the hell? And I don't know if you knew this, but Elm Street is basically the road that the the cavalcade, the JFK cavalcade turned off before it goes on to Dealey Plaza. So Yes, I, I only found that out when I did my right. research. So, oh, so, you, yeah. so you think, ah, okay, right, he's reffing that, but of course he knows the, you know, the Freddy Krueger film, but what he's doing is taking the Freddy Krueger title and and repositioning it where, where that title began, because Wes Craven, who did Nightmare on Elm Street, basically said, I, you know, I we chose Elm Street because of its notorious connotations in jfk so mm. and, and and that to take to take it back to the uh the postcards of a hanging it mm. almost feels similar in the sense that he's taking he's taking a piece of real life and then spinning it into something into something abstract and horrific uh or at least return you know playing toggling between the real life and 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 fantasy and reminding you that this stuff, some of this stuff is surreal and some of it actually happened. And I think the yeah. most, well, not the most interesting thing, but another interesting thing about that is that you could read Desolation Row as poetry, but as we were saying, the, the lyrics for Murder Most Foul don't really jump off the page. It's, <laughs> no. it's so much about the performance. Yeah. Um, and the, as you say, the incantation and that kind of half-remembered sort of um, recitation thing that he has going with him. And the, and the musicians are just absolutely in key with his with his thinking. They seem to be absolutely articulating every every speck of his vision as well. But yeah. you can't you can't read Murder Most Foul like you can read Desolation Row no. and, and view it on those terms. No, it's just, it's couplets, man. I, 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 just, yeah. I know Bob loves a couplet, but it's, yeah, on the page, 
it reads like bad poetry, but it sings like good poetry. I think maybe yeah, that's different. Exactly. That's exactly know? it. But man, it's a high wire act. And and it's because I heard him recently in the New York Times interview talking about the Eagles and their inclusion kind of in there, you know, Don Henley and Glenn Fry. And, and he loves them, right? He, he said, and he said, is, hey, he, is he taking the piss though? Or is, is, I mean, yeah. I thought he was taking the piss until. You know, he's saying life in the fast lane or something. I think, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But then yeah, he's some in town, pretty mates yeah. all in a row. And I have to confess, yeah. that's my favorite Eagles song by a country mile. Well, I've listened and, to it now because because right. he mentioned it. And someone <laughs> apparently on YouTube, the first comment after the song on YouTube says, put your hand up if you're here because of Bob Dylan. <laughs> 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 you know, I I used to love the Eagles when I when I was a kid. You know, and I, it was only when I moved to the UK I realized that 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 made me completely uncool. Yeah, right. But you know, in America, there there was you know there wasn't that shame about the Eagles. So in the UK, for some reason, there there is and was. It never yeah. hit me until I saw the Big Lebowski when he said, "Man, I've had a rough day and I hate the fucking Eagles." <laughs> I was probably the only person who cheered in the cinema because I thought I felt that for years, but I've never been able to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, their their coked up album, the uh, I think it was called the the last. The last run or something was quite the the, the one that did it after. Is there only California. one coked up album? Uh, no, well, there's super coked up. Oh, album. Right, okay. <laughs> it, it was it was the one where they all hated each other yeah. and were all when hell froze over. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, but it was I can't remember now because I uh, again it got terrible reviews and you weren't supposed to like it. But I quite liked it because they were being really awful. It was like the, the dark side of the Eagles. Yeah, I mean, it makes me want to. I want to now listen to it because you don't. You want the dark side of the Eagles. Yeah. Oh, the know? story. Yeah, Eagles is amazing. It's great, but I, I, I think I think the kind of the, the common understanding was that the story of the Eagles is better than the the, the sound of the Eagles. You know, to yeah. some extent. But I, I kind of think Dylan's just kind of going. Listen, going back to that trance thing, he's making lists of songs that are coming into his head, and he's kind of going, "Look, I, I, mm. I I'm not necessarily standing by this music, but I'm telling you that." These are the names that are coming up when I'm I'm thinking about sort of Americana. Well, he and, said that about uh, Anne Frank and Indiana Jones too. He exactly. just said, "Well, they were just two names that happened to come up together. I can't tell you why. They just yeah. did." Yeah, and it's a, it, and it is a bit like a jukebox, just in the way that you know a jukebox just has a, lots of kind of conflicting choices. It just feels like Bob's going, "Well, this is you know this is the soundtrack to my life in my head at the moment, and uh, I'm not going to get in the way of it." But I love the idea of uh, a dying Kennedy just having a, a sort of flashback flash forward of mm. his whole life and american life it really holds up that interpretation it yeah, really really beautiful. does i love the fact that he he gets randy newman in there because i know that he uh, he admires randy newman as a as a songwriter but that that sort of jumped out at me you know from all those old classics mm. he is lonely at the top which of course uh randy newman wrote for frank sinatra yeah, and there's oh, really. Uh, which did you know that he 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 presented it to Frank Sinatra, you know, through his people, and said, "I've written a song for you, Mr. Sinatra," which is this, you know, bitter elegy to a an aging singer who's mm. lost touch with his his audience, and Sinatra, you know, <laughs> just threw it back in his face, basically, oh, and uh, so he had to record it himself. Yeah. But it's, but but it's funny that list and things he said in the New York Times uh, and and the Indiana Jones reference and stuff <laughs> is the sort of stuff that if I'd if I'd read about Dylan when I was fourteen or fifteen, it probably would have made me less intimidated by the songbook, less uh, less scared of the man and the body of his music. And that, that's not to say that I wish I'd read it at age 14, but it's interesting now that just that he seems he seems less concerned with preserving the myth. Although, 
you know, you have things like the Rolling Thunder Scorsese film, which <laughs> absolutely kind of opened the curtain and then shut it again extremely quickly. But uh, but it does seem like he's trying. He's not being the. He, he's not as scary as he used to be. Yeah. He he's he's quite genial if you get past your original fear. Yeah. Yeah. He's in, definitely entering a sort of jolly grandpa phase. I think. To, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's um. But I I was trying to think to myself, what other songs were there that that kind of built up my my slight sort of uh, unhealthy reverence of Dylan. Don't think twice it's all right was a huge deal for me. Mm. And that line of you just kind of wasted my precious time uh, has stayed with me just for years and years. And I remember hearing that before I'd fallen in love, basically, or before mm. I really had a, a relationship. And it struck me how odd it was that he came out of a a blues tradition where, you know, normally you sing about your girl leaving you and your dog leaving you and everything. And you are the victim. But in Don't Think Twice It's All Right, he is basically singing a song of emancipation. And it's tough love and it's slightly cruel. And it's basically something that Beyonce would sing now. Yes. (laughs) Basically, you should have put a ring on it. Is a version of "Don't Think Twice." It's all right. It's yeah. it, it's self emboldening, and it's uh, it's getting over heartbreak by by storming out and saying, "I deserve better than this." And I just could not relate to that at age fourteen, fifteen. But then, you know, when you have your heart broken a few times, you realize, "Ah, I know exactly what you're doing," because that is exactly how it feels. Yeah. Then you give someone your heart and find out they want your soul. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, a, a song like that was something that I love for the tune. I love for the singing. But I just didn't understand it until 10 years later, like in my mid-20s. Yeah, we've all got those Dylan songs that uh, even in your 30s or your 40s, yeah. I think. Uh, I mean, I was listening to um, Wick, The Wicked Messenger from um, John Wesley Harding. Mm. And uh, the song, If You Cannot Bring Good News, Then Don't Bring Any, the, 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 the line, mm. If You Cannot Bring Good News, Then Don't Bring Any, jumped out at me. And I just thought... Yeah, stop being such an asshole. <laughs> it's it's own, you know, I wouldn't have when I was younger, that line didn't affect me at all. Yeah. I just I thought if you've said things that you regret, yeah. then that line can any any Dylan line can jump out at you, but yeah. that one just happened to jump out at me. It reminds me of something my mom said, because she uh she was a big Dylan head, obviously, like in the sixties, and she's she's Canadian. She grew up in Toronto. Oh yeah. And she saw Dylan on the electric tour in sixty-five, I think at Massey Hall, which is like the main right. the main spot in Toronto. And I was asking her about it. And I kind of said, well, what was that like? And she said she was taken along by a boyfriend. She can't remember the first half. All she can remember is the electric. Right. She thinks she left and she booed. And mm. she vividly remembers hearing like a Rolling Stone. And she said, I hated it. And she said, wow. I hated it. I hated it. And she said, I kept hating it. And then I loved it. Two months later, I loved it. <laughs> And she said something really interesting where she said, the thing I remember about my experience with Dylan is there was no gray area. It didn't grow on you. You either hated it or loved it, or you hated it and suddenly loved it. But there was no, there was no, it was growing on her. It just suddenly the door opened and it just flooded in. And weirdly, yeah, don't think twice it's all right. It's something, it's a bit like that idea of just, I don't understand what you're singing about. And then suddenly you understand exactly what he's singing about. And it's not its not that it's impenetrable. It's just that you have to slightly, you have, or I had to slightly grow up to kind of meet him on his terms, you know? Or even, I mean, Murder Most Foul, I have to say, when I first heard it, uh, and I heard those first, you know, six lines or so, I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I noticed that there's going to be another 17 minutes of this. Yeah. And 
it hit me in bits. It actually made, moved me in bits, but it, all, it mystified me more than anything. Mm. And, uh, and I didn't like it. I had to say, ultimately, I would say that after hearing it once, the thing that I didn't like was the fact that I found the music and I still find the music uh, not, not good enough. Yeah. I, 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 it's not good enough for me. The music in Desolation Row is brilliant and will always be brilliant and it never bores me it's just fabulous so i had to uh, i sat down you know uh again and again and again with murder most foul and kind of forced myself through the boredom of the music Mm. and it came up fabulously but i mean you really have to you know i couldn't disagree more i I must say if if i I would happily have that music play on a loop uh, through my funeral i just think it's utterly perfect (laughs) And it's just, it's really moving and really profound. And actually, when I go back to it, that's what surprises me. Um, and that's what I feel, you know, I'd maybe not noticed enough the last time I listened to it. Huh. Well, I'll see you outside in the alley. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be holding the board. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll be there with Gimbo. Men of honor. <laughs> so what do we, but just to go back to Murder Most Foul, what do, what do we make of the conspiracy background of it because there you know there's most of it seems to me to be at least discussing at least most until you get to the 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 list of songs discussing that is is it a metaphor is it my imagination what do you guys think you know business is business and it's murder most foul Mm. sound it sounds to me like like a big old conspiracy thing i've been reading about the cia you know the conspiracy about john dulles and the cia taking part the any I just think, going back to what I was saying, I just think so many people know that stuff. Even if you're not interested in the assassination of JFK, you know Mm. the phrase back and to the left, you you know Grassi Knoll, there are all these phrases Mm. that are just almost uh, uniquely particular to the assassination. You know, Grassi Knolls don't exist outside of Dilly Mm. Plaza, you know, Mm. depository, all those those phrases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, look, if I'm honest, that stuff... I kind of do put in a kind of hurricane, uh, almost a knocking on heaven's door sort of box of, it's almost like you're describing a kind of Wild West shooting. It's visceral and it's, you know, it's a reimagined kind of restaging. But for me, it, it's not the most interesting bit. I think I, I think the song for me gets interesting when uh, when he starts singing, we're right down the street from the street where you live. And, and he starts talking about this other, these other people. And I think... Uh, I think initially you sort of thought, oh, I, I was expecting a kind of verse about the mafia or you know, the CIA or something. Mm. But actually, it's not that. And I think there we begin to enter more abstract Dylan territory. And that's, you know, is that the devil or is it uh, various other unpopular uh, American administrations? Uh, is it just the uh, the administration itself? I don't know. But uh, it's... I think I, I think when the song sort of abstracts and gets away from Dealey Plaza, it gets more interesting for me. I agree. I, th- I think, but he does the, keep bringing it back. That's the that's the thing. It you think, oh, it's abstracting, it's abstracting, yeah. and then boom, Heartland Hospital is is mentioned, and then you know, boom, I've got blood in my eye, yeah. and, and and then it, so it's a, it's a weird structure mm. to me. But they're you know, accepted bits of of historical rhetoric, aren't they? And, and blood in my eye. That's a, that's a, that's a very close to a folk song that he covered. You know, I mean, I I think there's so much of Dylan that we we if we try and read a political agenda into it, we're just going to hit a wall. Because um, I think I think as Rufus says, I think there's something beyond that. That's that's what he's kind of harping at, really. Yeah, and and you know, let's not forget, kind of it. <laughs> 
the poetry does kind of, it does go a little bit back and forth. I mean, it's not just bad at the beginning. The, <laughs> yeah. the, there's the line, it's violent, deceitful, it's cruel, and it's mean, ugliest <laughs> thing that you ever have seen. Again, it's a little bit kind of, I don't know, it kind of felt like, Bob wrote that on the way to the studio, and and, and it's I find it no, I find no, it an hey. absolutely confounding song, but I love it, and I suppose maybe it's it's simply it does feel like it's the one thing he didn't has he ever kind of sung about JFK and the assassination before overtly? I don't no, think- he he very foolishly um, said something about him recognizing himself in Lee Harvey Oswald as a, oh, an acceptance right. speech when he was very drunk, very early yes. in his career. What, yes. So but I don't know whether this is his attempt at, at, at addressing the one thing. You know, it's it's almost like you know the fact he never played Woodstock and he never mm. never sang about JFK. He's going okay. Here's my JFK Maybe. song and. And it just takes time for him to get through the gears. And I, yeah, I, I, I love, I just love the incantation at the end. That it feels to me that that's where the song is urging itself towards. There are there are pockets of just real beauty in the in the the sixty three stuff, but it feels like that's just a kind of engine that's getting him to this um this place of of kind of past, present, and future Americana, you know. And 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 that's I don't know. It's uh, it, it remains just, yeah, a really, a really mysterious song. That magic bullet of yours has gone to my head. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. It, I know. Well, also, it feels weirdly playful. And I don't that's know. a pun worthy of Oasis, isn't it? Yeah, really? exactly, exactly. Charlie Parker and all that junk. When I, I must say, when he got to that bit the first time, you know, with junk heroin, I thought... I'm I'm switching off again, Bob. Yeah. You know that's that's a really shitty line, but maybe you know it's not as bad as it sounds at, at first. Yeah, it's it, it's a, it's a confounding song. I've loved it from the first moment I heard it. I love it for its its kind of pockets of poor poetry as much as much as for its good mm. stuff as well. It's totally confounding, and I you know it is unfashionable to sort of or certainly kind of. <laughs> Undillanish for him to release something like that with a with a nod necessarily to what's going on in the world, but there does there does seem to be a kind of vibration between that song and when it was released and the frustration that people may be feeling in America kind of right now. And I I do wonder if on some level kind of Bob sort of thought, look, this is not my finest work, but it is vibrating rather well with what I'm seeing on the streets uh, and what I'm feeling in the air. Um, so maybe it's maybe it's a matter of just kind of timing and sort of positioning and a triumph of that over over content. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside Immobile, engineered by Rob Ackerman and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the Music Podcast Network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. What is the truth? And where did it go? Ask Oswald and Ruby. They ought to know. Shut your mouth, said the wise old owl. Business is business. And it's a murder most foul. Mm -hmm.